Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. If you would like to participate in online worship, sermons, and children's programs, then check out the Renaissance Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, let's get started. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Renaissance. My name is Jeff. I am the lead pastor here at the church. Uh, A lot of people might know the story. Some of you might not if you're watching online or maybe visiting with us for the first time. Um, But Renaissance is a church plant. Now, we're 10 years old, so we're not a young, fledgling church plant like we used to be when we first started. But we are, in fact, a church plant. And, And I was thinking about that this week, that... Um, when God was asking me and some other people to start a church that would eventually become Renaissance, um, it was a real slow process for me. I first had to assimilate uh, the idea that maybe God was asking me to start a church. I had to gather some people who were willing to partner with me in doing all of that. wanted to make sure my wife and family were on board with all of that as well. Um, and once the, the affirmations came that we were to move forward and plant a church, the process really slowed down and stopped. When you, when you would expect it to, to ramp up, move faster, and, and see a lot of activity uh, moving forward to get us to actually launch our new church, the opposite, in fact, took place. Uh, I began to have, as I mentioned many times before, issues with anxiety all over again. This is something I struggled with in my high school and college years, seemed to have overcome it since I'd become a Christian. And now when God is calling me to be a church planter, I am embarking on the most anxious period of my life. I, I lost 20 plus pounds in a few months. I could barely eat or sleep. It was, it was so trying. I, I was learning to trust God in what he was asking me to do. And yet in all of that, I seemed to be struggling and suffering through it. In fact, one of the things I had to work through was was my identity as a Christian, my identity as a follower of Jesus. And eventually, uh, our identity as a church plant that was going to be separate and unique from the church that we were planting from. I was thinking about all of this because this last week I was reading a book by Mark Knoll. His book is called Turning Points. It's decisive moments in the history of Christianity. And he's, he teaches that, that the, the young church, the young Christian church, after Jesus had died on a cross, raised back um, from the dead, went to, back to heaven to be with the Father, uh, gives his disciples the Holy Spirit, the whole thing, and then pro, like proclaims them that they're to go into all of the world and preach the gospel, right? So the church has been born and they're going to start, but there's this moment when the church has to actually leave the place that it was established, which was in Jerusalem. And it had to wrestle through a, a, a number of different things to sort of find her own identity. One of the things that she had to wrestle through, one of the things that the early church had to wrestle through was questions like this. Um, what is truth? Secondly, how does a person know what that truth is? And then lastly, and equally as important is, is how does a person live or experience or put that truth into practice? You see, the, the new church, the Christian church, was, was an offshoot, if you will, of, of Judaism, but it was going to become its own separate and unique religion based on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And to answer those questions, what is truth? How do we know the truth? And how do you put that truth into practice? Those three things had to be figured out. And in the first 300 years or so of the, the, the church's birth, those things were figured out. 
what is truth? The question, what is truth? Well, they knew the truth to be a revelation from God himself in his son, Jesus Christ. That Judaism, with all of its writings in what we now call our Old Testament, it spoke of a Messiah that would one day come. It spoke of a Redeemer that would one day come, but they didn't know who that was. The, the church, the Christians, the people who, who believed Jesus to be the Messiah, they had an understanding of that new revelation. So the new truth was Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But the second question, you know, how do we know the truth? They had to then leave what was the Old Testament writings and establish for themselves some authentic, some trustworthy sources. We call it the New Testament now, but back then they were just letters written by Paul and Peter and James and, and a couple gospels or stories of Jesus' life from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they had to assemble all of those together into some writings, again, that we call the New Testament. And so what is the truth? It is Jesus. How do we know the truth? We get it through these um, authenticated scriptures about Jesus' life and the gospel of Jesus. And then lastly, how do we put all of that truth into practice? It had to come through uh, learning to do church, if you will, learning to do Christian experience um, outside of Judaism, outside of temple worship, outside of Jewish holidays, And that really came to a head in about 70 AD when Jerusalem was finally destroyed by the Roman authorities. A couple years before, in 66 AD or so, the Jewish people had finally had enough of Rome having control over them, and they revolted against them. They tried to push back the Roman soldiers, try to take back their own country. Well, when The emperor in Rome heard of this. He decided to quash this rebellion as soon as possible. And he sent one of his greatest military commanders, a guy named Vespasian, to quash this rebellion. Vespasian makes his way towards the Judean area to to settle these Jewish people into an understanding of who's actually in charge. And he sets the noose, so to speak, around them. He establishes dominance in all the Mediterranean seaports and eventually sets his eyes upon Jerusalem. But just as he's about to embark on a a fight into Jerusalem, he's called back to Rome because the emperor Nero had killed himself and a series of successive emperors were failing and he was called to be the new emperor. So Vespasian leaves his son Titus in charge and Titus takes the charge into Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now this is important for this reason right here. Most historians believe that Titus wanted to destroy Jerusalem, particularly to destroy the temple in Jerusalem for this reason, so that the Jewish and Christian religions might be completely abolished. You see, he didn't see the difference between Christianity and in Judaism, he thought they were all kind of the same thing. And if I destroy the temple, then I can destroy both of those religions. And so he did. In 70 AD, they took, they, Rome took Jerusalem, destroyed it, destroyed the temple, and all of the people were spread out um, from Jerusalem from that point forward. But in the middle of all of this struggle and in the middle of all this suffering as they are being attacked by Rome, the church of Jesus it continued to grow, that the church of uh, Jesus, Christianity itself, spread out into the modern world and it took the message of hope and of Jesus with it and more converts were made and it, it grew bigger and bigger and bigger. 
In fact, in a few decades after the sack of Jerusalem, which was the center of all religious faith in Judaism and even in Christianity, within a few decades, the center of Christianity had moved all the way to Rome. Amidst great persecution and struggle and suffering, the church of Jesus actually grew. In fact, this idea that trials can produce something greater than you could possibly imagine is found in our New Testament. It's in the the book of James. James is the brother of Jesus, and he writes this in regards to sufferings and struggles and trials. He says, James chapter one, verse two, that we should consider it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And if we let that steadfastness have its full effect, then you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, even James, the brother of Jesus, one of the writers of the New Testament books, um, he had an understanding that struggle, trial, suffering somehow have a way to produce something inside of us that we could never reach without. We could never reach this fullness of faith, this steadfastness of faith, all of these things. We could never reach those without trials, without struggles, without sufferings. But how, how does God work that out in us? Um, There's an Old Testament prophet. His name is Isaiah. Isaiah lived um, around 700 years before Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, right? Before Jesus was born and we celebrate the Christmas story, there's a man named Isaiah who was a mouthpiece for God, a prophet of God speaking to God's people, um, encouraging them, condemning them when they went the wrong way and promising that one day God would send a Messiah, uh, a chosen one to redeem all of God's people back unto himself. And in this writings of Isaiah, we have it in the Old Testament called the book of Isaiah. In in the middle of Isaiah um, chapter 53, we begin to read a description that he gives of this anointed one or this Messiah that is to come. This, This person we know as Jesus, he describes him and look at some of the language that he describes him. As he says that he will be despised and rejected by men, that he is a man acquainted by sorrow or grief, that this Messiah will be pierced for the transgressions of many and crushed for all of their iniquities. He's painting a picture of a Messiah, of an anointed one, the redeemer of all mankind as a person who suffers See, we see that passage in Isaiah 53 as a messianic passage, speaking of Jesus. And when it says that he was pierced for our transgressions, we remember that Jesus' hands and feet were in fact pierced as he was nailed to the cross, that he was despised by men as he was despised by his own people, the Jewish people. All of this to to point to this one thing that ultimately Isaiah was painting a picture for us that the chosen one of God would in fact suffer that the anointed one, the redeemer, would in fact endure a painful death, death upon a cross, and he would suffer. And because of this one thing, many of the Jewish people could not accept Jesus as the Messiah. They could not get into their mind that God's chosen one, that God's holy one could ever suffer. They would quote even their own scriptures and say something like this, Cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. It's a passage out of Deuteronomy that says that any man who commits a crime that is worthy of being hanged, that he would be hanged on a tree. 
that that man is certainly cursed by God. And, and the picture is Jesus is nailed to the tree, the cross, if you will. They saw Jesus as cursed. There's no way a man who suffered that kind of death could be the chosen one, the holy one of God. They could not see how suffering can play a role in their faith. They could not see how God would use suffering as a way to lead them into greater understanding of who he is. The apostle Peter, Peter was one of the disciples of Jesus. He was one of the original 12. He became an apostle because Jesus had actually um, appointed him to become an apostle. And we later um, call Peter the apostle of hope. And there's a a primary reason for this because uh, Peter's primary message about Jesus was, was one of hope. His primary message is to get people to trust the Lord, to to live obediently as best they can, no matter what your circumstances, and to always keep your eyes fixed on God's ultimate promise of deliverance. Suffering, according to Peter, is to be expected. Suffering, according to Peter, is to be expected, but it's temporary and it yields great blessings for those people who would remain steadfast in it. And in his letter, 1 Peter, written to Christians, he writes these words in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening. Do you hear what he's saying? He says, listen, loved ones, don't be surprised when these trials come upon you, when suffering and struggle comes upon you, as if it's something unique or peculiar to you. Just because you're a Christian, he's saying, it doesn't mean you're not going to struggle. It doesn't mean you're not going to suffer for some things. But he says in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter, who followed Jesus for some three, three and a half years, he had an understanding that suffering plays a crucial role in our lives as well. That believers, that Christians, those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, we must be people who understand the way of suffering. Think about this. If God wasn't even going to remove suffering from his own chosen one, his own holy one, his anointed one, his son, Jesus, why would we think that he's going to remove suffering from our own lives? We must understand that God has a purpose in our struggle and our suffering. Um, I've stated many times I I didn't become a Christian until I was well into my mid-20s, but it doesn't mean I never went inside of a church before. I'd been inside many churches. A lot of my friends were married. I've been to all of the different events that take place inside of churches. And I I do remember this one particular thing that um, made me think, uh, I don't know how to say this. I, I would run across in some churches that some churches would have a cross with, with Jesus hanging on the cross and other churches would just have a, an empty cross. Now we call the, the cross with, with the corpus or the body of Jesus on it, a crucifix, a crucifix. The Roman Catholic church would call this a crucifix. And, and it's got a, a cross with Jesus laying dead and, and broken and bloodied 
on that cross, but other churches did not have the, the corpus of the body of Jesus on it. It was just an empty cross. And I always, always wondered why that was. Why do some churches have a dead Jesus and others not? And I remember one time sitting in like a Bible study and somebody asked that question and it was so profound to me. Do you remember sitting in class in school when the teacher's droning on and on about some math equation or some chemistry thing? And you're thinking to yourself, I have no idea what's happening, but you think you're the odd man out that everyone else seems to understand what's going on. And then out of nowhere, someone raises their hand and says, hey, I don't understand. And you're like, yes, somebody else totally doesn't get it either. When someone asks that question, why, why does the Roman Catholic church have a, a body on their cross? But when I go to the, the Baptist church down the street, they don't. And, and I heard an answer and I'll share it with you. Sometimes people say that the reason that the, the evangelical churches or, or, you know, reformed churches or whatever um, don't have the body of Jesus on a cross is because we believe that Jesus is raised from the dead, <laughs> that he's no longer dead on a cross, that he was buried in a grave and rose and he's back in heaven with the father. So we have an empty cross to remind ourselves of the resurrection of Jesus, which is beautiful. Except if we move to fast, if we move too quick through the story of redemption that God has established from the beginning in the book of Genesis, when the first sin entered the world and all the way through the book of Revelation where Jesus reestablishes his kingdom and all of that, that there is a moment where Jesus suffers. There is a moment where Jesus dies and we don't want to be people who move too quickly past it. The Roman Catholic Church, with all of her misgivings and some things, they seem to at least get that part right. That yes, Jesus is raised from the dead, but he also suffered. Yes, he also suffered for us. And we, we can see that in that cross, that crucifix, if you will. St. Augustine in the fourth century said this about the death of Jesus. The death of the Lord our God should not be a cause of shame for us. Rather, it should be our greatest hope, our greatest glory. In taking upon himself the death that he found in us, he has most faithfully promised to give us life in him, such as we cannot have of ourselves. That he loved us so much that sinless himself, he suffered for us sinners. He suffered for us the punishment that we deserved for our sins. How then can he fail to give us the reward we deserve for our righteousness? For he is the source of righteousness. How can he whose promises are true fail to reward the saints when he bore the punishment of sinners, though without sin himself? And he finishes with this line, brethren, let us fearlessly acknowledge and even openly proclaim that Christ was crucified for us. Let us confess it, not in fear, but in joy, not in shame, but in glory. We must not be people to dismiss suffering. We don't want to sanitize the suffering that Jesus went through we don't want to sanitize even the suffering that we're going through in our own lives. We must embrace it. We must, in fact, learn from it. Oftentimes in churches, when, when someone is struggling, when someone is suffering through things, 
when they're asked how things are going, right? The typical greeting at church. Hey man, how you doing? How are things? You doing okay? And our pat response is, yeah, I'm fine. Everything's good. When, when internally we might in fact be struggling with something that they don't know about. And one of the reasons we do that, besides the fact that we don't want to get into this big long conversation, right? When we're passing each other at the beginning of church or at the grocery store, One of the reasons is we've bought into this belief that as Christians, somehow if you're struggling or if you're going through some suffering moments in your life, that that somehow you're doing your Christian faith wrong. And that is in fact not true. That we cannot be people to dismiss or sanitize the suffering out of our lives. So when we're asked how we're doing, it is best that we be honest with everyone and even ourselves, that we are struggling with things, that there are um, issues in our life that are causing us to suffer. And if we embrace the suffering, if we lean into it, there is something we can learn from it. Uh, John Tyson, the pastor in New York City, um, tweeted this this week that I found fascinating. He said this, God is trying to grow us in prayer, hashtag 2020. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like of all things that 2020 might be known for, could it be possibly that God is in fact trying to show us something? In the midst of all of our struggle and suffering, in the midst of this worldwide pandemic called COVID-19, is God trying to reveal to us that there's an avenue to know him better called prayer? The Apostle Paul um, suffered a lot for Jesus. In fact, there's a a time in one of his missionary journeys as he's traveling uh, around the modern world there trying to teach people about Jesus that he has just been overcome with with affliction, just all kinds of things happening to him. Um, He even says at one point that there's a, a messenger of Satan that has been sent to harass Paul and to keep him from being conceited, which I so love that God loved Paul so much that he let a messenger of Satan harass him so that he wouldn't become conceited. But he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8, that three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. Like, God, please take this thing away from me. Make this thing leave me, he says. But verse 9, but the Lord said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is in fact made perfect in weakness. So therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You hear that? That we can actually boast in our weaknesses and we do so that the power of Christ would then rest upon us or hear me, would come to us. If we dismiss our sufferings, if we dismiss and sanitize all the struggles that we're going through, we never give Christ the opportunity to come to us in power. Verse 10, he says, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses. I'm content with insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, he says, then I am strong. There is a uniting that comes to us in weakness. There is a uniting that comes to us in struggle and suffering. It's, it's the acknowledgement that we are enduring something that is greater than we can handle. And in that moment, Christ's strength shows up in our lives. And in that moment, when we surrender all ability to help ourselves, we give Christ the opportunity to strengthen us. And in that divine, beautiful, 
(laughs) strange moment of our suffering and weakness, God's strength comes alongside and we are united with him as one. Suffering can unite us with Christ. Kate Bowler is a professor at um, Duke University in North Carolina. She teaches history of Christianity. Um, She admits she grew up in a moderately Christian home, you know, probably went to church a couple times a month, who knows. And um, at some point in college, she decided to make theology and the study of God and Jesus her life's work. And so she graduated from Duke Divinity School herself, went on to get her PhD, um, started a family, got married. And at the age of 35 years old, she was diagnosed with an incurable type of colon cancer. Stage four, it had metastasized into other parts of her body. Um, so she decided to have surgery to remove the, the tumors from her colon. And she writes, when she was in her most vulnerable and her most incapacitated state, she didn't feel angry. She, she actually says, um, as she writes in her book, uh, everything happens for a reason and other lies that I've loved, which is a New York Times bestseller, by the way. She says, I didn't feel angry when I was vulnerable. I didn't feel angry when I was incapacitated. In fact, she says she felt loved. In the midst of all of the struggle of her life, why would this happen to me? I've devoted my life to study who you are and to teach seminary students the truth of who your son Jesus is. And I have cancer, stage four cancer, and I'm, I'm not supposed to be mad. You know, she, she realizes she was overcome by the love of God in the midst of all of her struggle and sufferings. And we know this, that this isn't a unique experience to her alone. Many people have expressed similar experiences during, during a particularly hard and difficult situation. They say things like this, I have known God in the good times and the blessings, and now I will know him better in his sufferings. Suffering not only allows us to experience and know God better, but it unites us to one another as well. It unites us to one another in ways ways that could not happen without the suffering. If I were to ask the people in this room, or maybe at home you could picture how this would happen, but if I were to ask the people in this room to stand up if if they have been impacted personally by cancer, and if we all stood up, we would look around and we would be united in one another Um, in an experience of suffering that um, would bring us together in a way that nothing else can. I mean, I could have the same people sit down and say, okay, now everyone stand up if you've ever owned a Buick. (laughs) Okay, everyone stand up if if you've ever vacationed in Cancun and people stand up. And I'm telling you, those things that unite us by owning a Buick or vacationing in Cancun, they will never unite us the way that suffering through cancer can. There's an understanding when we struggle and go through difficult seasons that we, we begin to have empathy towards other people who have experienced the same things. There's a clarity of life that some struggles bring. There's a clarity of life that some sufferings can bring. Uh, Warren Zevon is a musician, um, and many, many years ago, he was diagnosed with cancer as well, and he was a guest on David Letterman right after he was diagnosed, and Letterman asks him, he says, man, in your perspective of life right now, is there anything about life that you know that I don't? And he he writes that, he goes, yeah, I know this, Uh, I know how you're supposed to enjoy every sandwich now. 
like in saying that, Warren Zevon just admits that, that um, when you're diagnosed with cancer, when you're going through a particular type of struggle or suffering that could eventually take your life, it brings a clarity and it removes the fog around your life where the important things become the important things. Now, Warren Zevon was not a Christian. And so his, his clarity was in regards to sandwiches and how much they should be enjoyed, which I'm not saying I disagree with, but I'm just saying that you and I as believers, we should have even more clarity than he does that our clarity would be who God is, that he is not a God who's um, trying to sanitize our lives by removing suffering, but in fact uses suffering to draw us to himself. And then he also uses said suffering to unite us to one another. As believers, we can know God better through our suffering and we can know God, and we can know other people better by our suffering as well. As believers, we can know so much through our suffering. We can know who God is better. We can know his, his strength in the midst of our weakness. We can know the affliction that other people have felt, and we can empathize with them in a greater capacity. Because of the struggles that we have, God is actually doing a work in our lives. And we must not be people who try to run from those things. We must not be people who bemoan when those things come. Someone once said this, when struggle comes to your life, when suffering comes to your life, you can become bitter or you can become better. I want to be a person who chooses to be better. Do you want to be better too? Who wants to suffer? Everybody raise your hand. I tell you, the doctrine of suffering um, was not something I was, I learned early on in my study to be a pastor or learned early on even in my Christian faith. Um, I mentioned in that sermon that oftentimes we've been told to just dismiss suffering when things are difficult, just act like it's not happening because that's not what God would have for you. And and yet when I read scripture and I I look into the, the lives of the people who follow Jesus faithfully, even unto martyrdom, many of them, many of them suffered a lot. I mean, there is a genuine, wonderful way to know God better when things aren't working the way you want them to work, when things just aren't laying out the way you had planned it. Your five-year plan is crumbled up and in the trash can called 2020, amen? And if it's not, you did not have a very good plan, I'm just saying. You can be united in his sufferings with him and then to know others. Oftentimes the Lord allows us to endure some really difficult things that we might then run into someone who's enduring something similar and you can just come alongside them and throw your arm around their, their shoulder and say, bro, I've, I've been there. I know, I know, I totally know. And, and the, the church of Christ is then strengthened and built up in, in, in a, into a picture of glory, into a picture that, that is faithful to what Jesus did for us. If you're suffering, um, you're not alone in that. Know that your Savior suffered for you. If you're suffering, know that, that there are people in this room who have suffered as well. Um, you're not doing it wrong. You're not. You could use this time to know him better 
and to know each other better as well. I want to pray for us and the band is going to come back and we're going to sing a song of hope. Who, who believes we still have hope in Jesus? Yes, thank you. Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful for the example that you've given us in your son, Jesus. And we're so thankful that we can um, not sanitize our lives, but embrace the challenges and the difficulties. That we don't have to be perfect in everything that we do because you were perfect in everything that you did. That you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we conf confess them to you and we believe that, Lord. So, Lord, if, there, if we're in this room and we have sinned against you, Lord, we confess those things to you. That we have fallen short of your glory for our lives. We know that and we know through Jesus Christ we have been forgiven those things. God, continue to work out our salvation in our lives. Continue to show us more of who you are through the trials and the struggles and the sufferings in our lives. God, we give you permission to expose the weaknesses in our lives so that you can be strong. God, would you use your spirit now to rise up inside of us to make us a people of hope. We know as dark as the days might seem sometimes that there is still hope in you. God, we thank you and we love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Renaissance Podcast. I hope that God has spoken to you through this message and that you're encouraged to continue pursuing Him. If you would like to get connected with what's going on here at Renaissance, then find us on social media or visit us online at rendicator.org. Remember to check out the Renaissance Church at Home page for online worship, sermons, and children's programs that are being offered during the COVID-19 outbreak.